Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mosaic believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all. Seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. Take a look at the book of Philemon, chapter 1, verse 8. Not exactly the most common book we read to. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, after today, uh, we have two conversations left in our series, Heretic, Rethinking Our Theological Assumptions. Of course, we've been following the Apostle and Nicene Creed since April as a way of talking about how do we examine our theological assumptions about God. And there's a statement that I want us to revisit, and it's a statement that goes like this. He, was, he suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. For those that were raised in the Protestant tradition, it might shock us to hear that the creeds, the Apostle and Nicene creeds, do not acknowledge belief in the Bible or scriptures. There's a whole lot about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's a whole lot about the church and baptism and life in the age to come. But if you take away those four words, according to the scriptures, there ain't anything on the Bible and the creeds. Why is that? Could it be that the Nicene and Apostles' Creed were, nearly, were formed nearly 42 years in the church's history before what we now know as the Bible was brought together? Could it be that the most important thing that as they were forming this creed was to understand the depths of the basics of Christian theology instead of should the Gospel of Thomas be put in the same category as the Gospel of Matthew? Historically speaking, the formations of the creed was at a point in the church's history where theology was so important because the church was so fractured on various theological points. So the missing element of the Bible in the creeds is no disregard of the creeds for the Bible. It's just trying to handle a different theological matter altogether. And our theology about the Bible matters. How we read, how we interpret, and how we imply scripture matters. The Bible is central to our lives as individuals and as a community of people. It is the beginning of authority of how we form our faith and how we live in this world. And while the creeds don't directly bring statements about scripture, about the Bible, it's important that we examine our theological assumptions about the scripture themselves. So I'm going to invite you this morning, this is not going to be a passive sermon. I'm going to invite you to think deeply. To think deeply about your theological assumptions about the Bible because it's important for us to understand how we formalize our beliefs around this thing that we call scripture and 
why it matters to our life. So let's jump into our text. We're going to skip uh, through, um, we skipped through Philemon as we were going through our series, Path Shaped by the Journey, because we know we'd pick it up here. Um, here's what you need to know about the letter of Philemon. First of all, it was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was actually written by Paul. Many times Paul was verbally dictating to someone else who was writing down the letter for him, but what Philemon tells us is that Paul wrote it with his own hand. So it tells us that this letter is super important. Now, what you also need to know, it's a very unique letter. It's a very slim letter. Compare it to the book of Romans. Romans has 7,111 words in it. Philemon, 445. So it's a dead sprint book. And it's an urgent message. Paul is in prison. But he's not writing to Philemon to do something on his behalf. He's writing on behalf of someone else. He's writing on behalf of a man named Onesimus. And this should be interesting. Philemon chapter 1, verse 8. Can we cut down my mic just a, a little bit, Tasha, just a tad bit? Thank you. Verse 8 says this. Therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner in Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is in my heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced by, but would be voluntary. Verse 15, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that, I, that you owe me for your very self. I do wish this, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to restore to you an answer to your prayers. Onesimus was a slave. More specifically, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. But he escaped. He got away. And it was illegal, of course, because Roman laws were written by slave owners, not slaves themselves. And except Onesimus jumped right back into the grip of slavery and became a fugitive of the Roman law. And as a fugitive, Onesimus had no longer any attachment to any household. Therefore, he could be the victim of any type of Roman law that would come down upon him. But he happens to develop a relationship with the Apostle Paul. And Paul welcomes him, not as a slave, but as a fellow brother in Christ. He calls him his son. And so Paul does something strange. 
he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And Paul wrote to Philemon as a brother in Christ, now one who is trusting in Christ, Paul begs Philemon to receive him not as a runaway slave, but as a friend and a brother in Christ. We don't know the conclusion of the delivery of this letter, but the Eastern Orthodox Church embraces Onesimus as a saint and later a bishop of Ephesus. Contextually speaking, this book is probably one of the most profound examples of forgiveness and reconciliation. But sadly, historically speaking, this book has been used for something altogether different. Between 1525 and 1866, the entire history of the slave trade to the New World, according to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World. Only 10.7 survive the dreaded Middle Passage that disembarked in North America and the Caribbean and South America. And for most, we look at this nearly 350-year period with great disappointment and great shame. How could anyone subjugate another human being to such dehumanizing qualities? Yet this is part of America's past. And although many of our founding fathers acknowledged that slavery violated the core of the American Revolution, so many of them owned slaves themselves. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, John Jay, and James Madison all owned slaves. So it puts on a new meaning when you hear the terms, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. What they really meant by that was white, rich men. And what this means is that we have a dark past in our history. But even more than that, the more difficult pill to swallow is that the church, especially the southern church, justified and defended slavery. And you know what book they used as their primary argument behind this? The book of Philemon. For nearly a 400-year period, the church justified slavery with Scripture. For centuries, Christian slave owners in the United States operated within the tradition that biblically justified owning another individual and subjugating them to horrific things. And their arguments varied from the Ten Commandments to the patriarch Abraham owning slaves, from using the excuse that Jesus didn't actually outwardly speak and condemn slavery. Over and over again, Scripture has been used to justify slavery. In the book of Ephesus, in the book of First Peter, both authors call slaves to submit to their masters. But if you want to get even further down the rabbit hole, Christians use the Bible to subjugate what they deemed as an inferior race of people and as a ploy to get rid of their pagan religion by forcing Christianity upon them. Even Christian pastors in the South post-Civil War were still justifying segregation from their pulpits and propelling this, this dark history forward. I don't know about you, but I wish we could erase that from our history. Because the facts are so glaringly true. The church gave the thumbs up to the enslavement of millions of people and the subsequent system of racism and segregation from the position of religious and biblical authority. 
So on one hand, we look at the book of Philemon, and we see that it, it is a dangerous thing to take scripture and to justify your beliefs behind it. Philemon has been used for so many other things. It's been used to uh, push forward an economic shift. It's been used to push down the fundamental basic human rights of others. For nearly 1,600 years, the Bible has all too often been used as a source of power and definitive acts of injustice. And I know this might shock you. And, and I'm not intentionally trying to be controversial, but I'm trying to be honest. From slavery to segregation, from patriarchy to pushing women as an inferiority, from violence against unchristian cultures to economic subjugation of nations with untapped resources, the Bible has been used by Euro-American Caucasians to do a lot of awful things. And we, as religious people, when we're charged with the act of interpreting and applying scripture, it often can become something very dangerous. In reality, there is no great way to bring about uniformity of belief in the Bible because our perspectives are so diverse. We've talked about that, that as we even look at theology, all of our theology is different because it's based on experience and upbringing and mentorship and how we see scripture. So scripture is a very divided line on how we feel with it, how we interact with it. So therefore, it is absolutely important that we rethink our theological assumptions about the Bible. On one hand, this is one of the most loaded phrases you'll ever hear in your life. The Bible says... It has created a history of nonsense and, and gag-worthy justification of inhuman things. We've pretty well covered slavery. And that, sounds, that statement alone sounds so pitiful and empty that we summarize the justification of slavery in five minutes. And that feels weird saying we've covered that. But think of Jim Crow laws and hatred and violence and murder and house bombs and assassinations and discrimination, not only in America, but apartheid in South Africa, European colonization of other continents, American isolationism. The Bible has been used to justify the Spanish and Portuguese conquest and the enslavement of indigenous people. When scripture says that God has given us dominion over the earth, it has been used as a justification for us to ravage and deplete the earth of its resources. The danger in interpreting scripture is it's open-ended for us to say how we interpret it and how we apply it. Scripture has been used to justify violence. Reformers and Anabaptists and so-called witches were burned at the stake because nothing says the love of Jesus like you don't believe like we believe, so we're going to light you on fire for that. You see, Scripture is difficult. That phrase, the Bible says, is a loaded statement. From time to time, you might um, find that relationships can be complicated. I would ask for an amen, but I don't want some people to get slapped. But relationships are complicated. But can I give you some relationship advice this morning? If you really want to bring a spark and rekindle your relationship with your other, go to Ikea and buy absolutely nothing. My wife and I have been to Ikea twice and not bought a thing, and I couldn't love her even more. 
If you've never been to Ikea, basically it's the worst place to go when the zombie apocalypse breaks out because I'm not even sure employees know to how to actually exit the building. They have designed it in such a way that force you to that eventually at some point you're like, I really don't need any of these things, but you know what? Let's start filling up the cart with all this stuff that we need. And Ikea is famous for their prices because there's a famous tagline on almost all their products. What does it say? Some assembly required. Somebody created this meme as a way of saying, if you ever bought a car from Ikea, this is what it would look like. <laughs> it's overly complicated. It's convoluted. It's nauseating. It's so complicated. Maybe that's a tagline for scripture. The Bible. It's complicated. The intriguing and challenging thing about translating the word of God is that it thinks it requires us to think deeply. The Bible is not cut and dried. There are passages that are written metaphorically and others allegorically. There are texts that are supposed to be taken literally and others that were supposed to be taken figuratively. Some texts are intended to be historical records while others are supposed to be deep spiritual laments. There are texts that are black and white and there are other texts that are forcing you yourself into the gray of scripture. The Bible is extremely complicated. Anyone who tells you it's not, I'm going to go ahead and take a step to the side before lightning strikes. Okay, that's not how God works. There's going to be a really big flood in their house, and that's how they'll get taken away. Scripture is complicated. If you consider just for a second, look at the Old Testament. You see a God who calls for the genocide of men, women, and children, and the same God in the New Testament who has overwhelming compassion in Christ. Scripture is complicated. For nearly 2,000 years of Christian history, to look at Scripture has become a dividing line because you can read a verse of Scripture and I could read the same verse of Scripture and we come away with completely different perspectives on any number of things. From marriage to gender equality, from racial equality to alcohol to war to economic status, the end of times, separation of church and state, marriage and sexuality, on and on. You see, the phrase the Bible says, it's a complicated phrase because the Bible says a lot of things that we can't necessarily agree on. Because the Bible is a complicated book. It's a, it's a document that we examine and we wrestle with with our faith. And not only this, it's complicated because we are a people who look at things from biased perspectives. So what do we do with it? I think as we re-examine our theological assumptions about the Bible, I think we need to ask a very difficult question. What is the Bible's purpose? It's, it's a really simple, yet it's a really complex answer. It's simple because it's a wonderful resource that tells us the story of God, how God interacts with creation, how God is redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. It's a simple answer because the Bible is a source of, of love and hope and joy and peace and goodness. It's a simple question and answer because Scripture has served the authority for nearly 1,900 years for those who follow Christ. But it's a complex answer because we can't all agree on its purpose. It's weight and authority and style of interpretation. If Google serves as a microcosm of our society, just Google the phrase, what is the purpose of the Bible? It yielded 11 million responses. 
Some would point to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that a man of God may be adequate and equipped for everything. The problem in assuming that Paul is talking about the Bible is that the Bible wasn't written when Paul wrote that letter. The Gospels were not even written for 30 more years. What Paul is actually referring to is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as we know them. So instead of complicating the mess out of this conversation, like we have for the last 200 years of biblical criticism, let's talk about what the purpose of the Bible is for our life. The first thing I want us to understand is that the Bible is intended for our personal transformation. You see, all too often we have reduced faith, we have reduced beliefs, we have reduced the Word of God as something that we can shape and mold into what is desirable for us. God is this great big old Santa Claus that we just tell God exactly what we want, but as we encounter Scripture, Scripture is there to challenge us, to transform us into God's liking. Scripture is proof to us that God has a better way for us to be human in following Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, Scripture is a source of authority. It's a source of authority that is designed to transform you, to perfect you through God's love. And this is not an easy process. I don't know if you know this, but we human beings are a stubborn creation. Bible is a testament to that. Just look at the Old Testament alone. It's this ongoing and repetitive story of God giving the Israelites benefits, the people rebelling against God, ignoring God altogether. Consequences come from their actions, then they call out to God, and the process repeats over and over again. Scripture is proof that God has a better way for us. The scripture is there to transform us. The New Testament letters are examples of how we as followers of Jesus are trying to get this faith thing down. And all these letters by Paul and James and Peter and John were written as a way of improving us and correcting us and giving guidance along the way. God has given us the word as this beautiful and difficult and grace-centered transformation for our lives. Stop and consider for just a second. How scripture has transformed your heart and your mind and your soul. But the purpose of the Bible cannot stop right there. The problem is that we tend to stop right there in understanding of scripture. American evangelicalism has proved that personal salvation is the experience that matter most. History has, has proven that we can limit the Bible by only allowing it to bring transformation into our lives. But that is not the full brunt of scripture. Scripture is intended to bring transformation to the world. As one author put it, the Bible does not exist to simply contribute to your aesthetic joy and embrace the knowledge of things divine. It does do these things, but it's not its primary purpose. The Bible exists to shape your way of being in the world with God and God's creation. God's desire for God's story to be known to this entire world. And if we're reading the Bible for self-righteous and politically driven individualistic religion, having completely missed out on the social justice implications of Scripture, then we're keeping Scripture for ourselves. We have no desire to let it transform the world. This message is of cosmic care. It enlists us to break down all discriminatory social boundaries. It's a nonpartisan commission for us to love others in the way that we love ourselves. And so maybe it's time that we rethink 
our thinking and living around a comfortable religion that's centered around our use of scripture for token voice verses that transform our life so that we can simply put it on a wall because it sounds really cute. Maybe it's time for us to repent and recognize that scripture is for the transformation of the world. My oldest brother served as a manager at Verizon for many years, and um, one of the fascinating aspects of his job is that um, he taught classes on how to use a smartphone, and uh, several times a week people would come in and they would learn how to make calls and change settings and not purchase every single app that came up on their phone for them to, uh, to purchase, you know, all those game apps that come up. And he would often say, if you could just be a fly on the wall with some of the questions that I was asked. It's no wonder that the Jitterbug company has been selling millions of phones over the last couple years with like the only phone still left in the industry that you can flip up and just hit a few buttons. But the reality is that, that my children understand a smartphone better than I can. Like my children, both by the age of two, could grab an iPad or my iPhone and like function in it a whole lot better than I can. Often when we realize the depth of scripture, we, we complicate the nature of it. It can be so overwhelming to read and to use it. We get lost in it. It's like we need to be taught again how to use scripture. And so as we re-examine the fact that scripture is intended to transform our lives and the lives of this world, we need to also examine how we use scripture. And the first thing I want us to see is that the Bible must be seen through the lens of Jesus. The Word of God became flesh and invited us to find life through him. As one biblical scholar put it, no line can be drawn between that Jesus says and what Jesus does. Between his identity and his mission in this world, Jesus' words and works, his life and death, form an indisposable whole that provides full and fresh access to God. You see, we must read Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Because it's in seeing the world and seeing our lives through Jesus, we see the grace-filled possibilities of transformation even in the darkest and grim places of our lives and the darkest and grim places of this world. John reminds us that God's love is made complete in us when we love one another. In Christ, we learn the ability to love. We use and understand the ability to understand and use scripture within our life. The word of God is not a weapon to bludgeon people with judgment and condemnation. Through Christ, we see it's an invitation into grace and love and transformation. You see, Jesus changed the game when it comes to living out the word of God walking around in this world, transforming lives. As we also use scripture, it's important to understand what we're actually reading, the original context and why that matters. So consider for just a second, who wrote this book of the Bible? Who were they? Who, who were they writing to? What situations were they writing into? Because it's important that we understand the dynamics and the depths of Scripture. To simply rip a Scripture verse out of context, to use it to fit into whatever cliche type of faith we're trying to live, is, uh, is a wrong way to go about Scripture. But to understand context, to understand who it's written to and why that matters helps us come away with a more formed understanding of how Scripture is intended to transform our lives and the lives around us. But also as we read Scripture, we must recognize that this is not something we do alone. 
problem with evangelicalism and Christianity in America is that we've been convinced for so many years that it's about the individual faith. But if you read the books of the Bible, it's intended for a community of people. Scripture is intended for us to read together, to wrestle with together, to maybe even argue and come at different points in understanding of Scripture. Scripture must be read together in community. I've nearly for 15 years of theological education, biblical studies, and biblical language study, and I still will tell you there are times when I read Scripture and it's like, I have no idea what's going on here. I need you, I need my peers, I need others to help me be formed in Christ and the understanding of God's word. This is the call of scripture. Together, we live into the true usefulness of the Bible to bring about your transformation and the transformation of the world, my transformation and the transformation of the world. I asked you to stop and consider a few moments ago the scripture that has transformed your heart and your mind and your soul. Think about those scriptures for just a second. For me, I consider Luke 6, 12 through 14. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along the way who was covered in leprosy. He saw Jesus. He fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out his hands and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourselves to the priest. Offer a sacrifice that Moses commanded of your cleansing as a testimony to him. I remember encountering this scripture years ago, and it transformed my life. Why? The fact that Jesus could have spoke healing into this man's life, but instead Jesus chose to touch this man who was disgusting and filthy. The fact that in touching this man, Jesus literally became a religious criminal because the Levitical laws refused for you to touch an unclean person. The fact that in touching this man, Jesus stepped over all the religious, all the social, all the political boundaries of his day. All this was motivated by love and grace and mercy of God. And the rereading of this text so many years ago for me transformed my understanding of God and God and Christ in a way that transformed the way I understood following Jesus, living with Jesus. This text became a reality of Jesus' call to love enemy. With this text, the reality of any type of barrier set up by self-righteous and well-intended religious people to push people who are not like us away, all of a sudden we see the inclusiveness of Jesus to bring all people to himself. With this text, the political affiliations, all sexualities, all gender and ethnicities and religious affiliation are torn down by the radical love of God. In this text, we encounter the fortitude and compassion of the rebel rouser and troublemaker known to history as Jesus of Nazareth. How do you see scripture? How does scripture interact with your life? close with a quote from this one author. If you're looking for a verse which supports slavery, you'll find it. If you're looking for verses that will abolish slavery, you'll find it. If you're looking for verses that will oppress women, you will find it. If you're looking for verses that will
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.